Are you ready to free the body and free the soul? Join Dr. David, the cutting edge doc, as he guides us on today's journey. Here's Dr. David. Welcome, friends. Welcome to another edition of the Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul podcast. I'm your host for today, Dr. David Kamnitzer. Most people call me Dr. David, and I'm also the cutting edge doc. And one of the things we do on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul is we have in-depth conversations with people that are doing cutting-edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality, and social transformation. And I'm very excited about this conversation and our guest today. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest and why I invited him to come on to the series. And then we'll bring him into the conversation. So our guest today is Niall Gagan. Niall is a licensed psychologist in the state of California. And Niall is a person that, in my opinion, is doing amazing cutting-edge work in the field of psychology, helping to bridge psychology with spirituality and ontological inquiry. And he is a practitioner and a teacher of a method that we'll get into quite a bit today, a psychotherapeutic method called coherence therapy that has profound implications and applications, not only for people that are formally doing coherence therapy, but for anyone that wants to understand how to facilitate deep and lasting, uplifting change for human beings. So I'm going to bring Niall into the conversation now. Niall Gagan, welcome to Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. Thanks, David. It's a pleasure and an honor to be invited. Great. So I think my listeners, I've never shared this. I don't think they know uh, the extent of my background in psychology. My bachelor's degree is actually in psychology with an emphasis on body-mind-spirit integration from Sonoma State University back in the early 80s. And in the 70s and early 80s, Sonoma State University was kind of a hotbed for uh, spiritually oriented psychotherapy. And I had the privilege of studying with uh, Dr. Eleanor Criswell, who was one of the pioneers in biofeedback going all the way back to the mid-1960s. And she was also quite a yogi and also taught the psychology of yoga. And so uh, just to digress a little bit in my own journey, uh, there were many times I considered the possibility of becoming a psychologist. And to make a long story short, I ended up not going that route for many reasons. But one of the reasons was that I had not been exposed to a psychological methodology at that time that I felt actually had the potential and the power to go deep enough to integrate with my spiritual understandings. And also, of course, I was also looking for a psychology that would also honor and respect the physical body because I was convinced from my own experience that uh, in order to really heal the human mind, uh, almost always we had to address 
both physiological and spiritual matters as well. And uh, so I've been a big um, proponent of the fact that I think the potential for psychology will realize itself, first of all, in a spiritual context and with techniques and methods and theories that respect the unity of existence and also a psychology that isn't divorced from the physical realities and the physical body. And of course, science now is bearing out my hunch that uh, we're multidimensional in that way and that the state of our brains and the state of our hormones and biochemistry and how we move, it, all those things have an enormous impact on human psychology. And so I've always been on the lookout for what's on the cutting edge psychologically in, the, in terms of the interest that I mentioned. And about a year or so ago, I came across a body of work called Coherence Therapy that really excited me because I could see from my background in spirituality and ontological coaching and inquiry, I could see that what they were doing was grounded in things that made sense to me spiritually and ontologically. And also, it turns out that the cutting edge neuroscience and neurophysiology was validating the primary model of coherence therapy. And also I could see that the model of coherence therapy went beyond the practice of coherence therapy, that people that were doing other forms of coaching and psychotherapy could, once they really grokked the principles, could apply it to their particular craft and even enhance their craft and maybe do some interesting research. And so once I came across this, I wanted to connect with someone who was really good at coherence therapy, who also had a spiritual background. And so I kind of went searching on the internet and I ended up finding Niall and uh, very excited to share with all of you, Niall Gagan. So Niall, with that as a background, maybe you could talk a little bit about Anything you want to say in terms of opening remarks about coherence therapy? And also, I don't know if you can blend this together, but if you could um, kind of bring it into a story format and talk about your own journey, your own journey as an individual and your own journey as a psychotherapist and in your own healing, and then how you ended up coming eventually to coherence therapy and kind of what you saw there and talk about how you see coherence therapy. And then um, I think that'll really get this conversation going in a powerful way. And I'm sure it'll take on a life of its own. So I'll just be quiet for a while and just let you take the conversation where you'd like to take it for now. Sure. Okay. Well, thanks for that introduction. And uh, a few things that you said made me think about, you know, what is it about coherence therapy that might have grabbed you as you were doing research on, I'm sure, a whole range of different therapies? And, and what is it about coherence therapy that makes it 
uh, as you said, and I agree, uh, very compatible with a level of inquiry that goes beyond just trying to solve problems on the surface level. Um, which, you know, many of my clients are, that's all they're looking for. Many people come to me just saying, I've got a certain level of suffering that I'm experiencing based on this life problem. And what I want to do is fix the life problem or eliminate the suffering. And then I'll be on my way. And that's the work we'll do. And oftentimes, that's the work that therapists are doing with clients. I also have clients who come to me saying, you know, I've done a lot of work on myself already. I don't feel like I've got some specific psychological symptom. I'm not necessarily depressed or anxious, or I'm not necessarily suffering in res with respect to this life problem or that life problem. But I, I do have this feeling that something's missing and I'm wanting to do a deeper level of work on myself that starts sounding more like they're looking for their, their spiritual seekers. They're looking for uh, something, something that they can sense is missing in their experience. They want to access or contact, contact a, a, a level of their experience that seems to be elusive for them. And I'll take those clients on as well uh, as part of my coherence therapy practice. Incidentally, I also have the third group, I'd say, of people who come to me would be people who... Uh, start out wanting to work on the surface level, but once we start working, we start getting in contact with much deeper constructs and much deeper knowings and meanings about themselves and the world uh, and themselves in relation to the world, which make them start to realize, ooh, we could do much more than I originally envisioned. And so sometimes we'll sort of solve or work through the more surface level life issues that they wanted to work on in the first place and then we'll continue and do much deeper work um, which can be very gratifying so <clears throat> um, that's that's uh, just a in a nutshell my experience of working with people with you know through coherence therapy uh, but you mentioned a few things you mentioned that you had looked at a number of different therapies over time many therapies over time and hadn't found that you hadn't found a, a, a form of psychotherapy that that seemed compatible with a deeper search for self-realization or, um, or a deeper search for the ontological nature of reality and there are a few things that I find make coherence therapy uh, compatible with that kind of searching one is uh, and this will lead into how I got into coherence therapy in the first place. One is that coherence therapy is completely non-interpretive. So many, many other forms of therapy uh, are going to bring in uh, some degree of interpretation on the side of the therapist to some degree or another. Right? That'll take different forms for different therapies. But many, I'm not going to say all, but many other forms of psychotherapy uh, rely on the therapist being in some sort of expert role, either knowing what this is right from the beginning or being able to figure out what's going on, right, by listening to the client's experience and listening to the material that the client brings up 
and helping the client sort of re re envision or reform his or her material into a new narrative or a new story. But implicit in that is a sense, as I said, that the therapist is in this expert role and, and that the therapist is making meanings. The, the therapist's meaning-making apparatus is engaged and is then sort of offering or feeding back uh, a new version of reality to the client. And, and implicit in that, from my perspective, is, is a sense that somehow the therapist can know what's going on here and can uh, guide the client towards that knowing. Coherence therapy completely uh, is, is completely uh, and, and deeply uh, grounded in the, in the assumption that the therapist never knows what's going on. And in that, from my own personal path, I've found that it's in the not knowing, it's in the, the realm of the unknown that all the rich and amazing stuff actually arises. It's when in my own personal uh, path of personal growth and of spiritual growth, it's when I am able to relinquish a sense of the familiar or the known or that which makes sense to me and I'm able to just sit in and abide with uh, the unknown, that things start to arise, clarity starts to arise, um, powerful realizations arise. And that's true in my own personal inquiry and that's true in my inquiry, inquiry with clients and my work with my clients. So coherence therapy, completely requires the therapist to maintain a state of beginner's mind at all times, to enter into an exploration of the client's experience in a way that assumes, I know nothing. I don't know what this means. I don't know where this is headed, right? I don't know where this is going. And we're going to bump into things together and allow them to surprise us and allow uh, uh, realizations and awarenesses to take us off guard and delight us. And, and it brings a certain degree of excitement into the work. In the same way that in my own personal inquiry practice, I, when I can sit and really turn my awareness towards the unknown aspects of my experience and sit in the unknown, when things do arise and clarity suddenly comes up, it's, I often find it surprising and delighting. And that's what makes my own personal inquiry practice exciting. Um, so that's, that's one thing that came to me as I heard you talking. Uh, the other thing that I think makes coherence therapy so compatible with this deeper level of exploration is that it's completely based on a sense of being non-rejecting uh, of any part of one's experience. So Coherence therapy uses the word non-counteractive. And what non-counteractive means is when a client comes in and says, I'm experiencing this symptom or this problem, this issue, many other forms of therapy will sort of take it as a given that, oh, that's a problem. That's a bad thing. We have to get rid of that. 
right? Let's get rid of the depression. Let's get rid of the anxiety. Uh, it, it's a stance that many forms of therapy hold, which is, this, you know, this part of your experience shouldn't exist. This part of your experience uh, is the bad part, and we need to, in effect, surgically remove it and get rid of it, throw it out. Right? Coherence therapy holds a different stance, which is non-counteractivity. Uh, that what 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 it means to be non-counteractive is that when somebody comes in with a certain symptom, say depression or anxiety, the coherence therapist is going to assume that there is a reason why this exists as part of the client's experience. On a broader scale, my assumption is that there's a reason why any experience in the universe exists. Uh, in my own personal inquiry practice, that means if I'm feeling some really uncomfortable, intolerable, unwelcome feeling, I'm going to hold that same stance towards it, which is not to try to dissociate from it or move away from it, distract myself and do something different so that I don't feel it, or act it out to make it go away. I'm going to turn my awareness directly towards it, sit with it, abide with it, find out what this feeling has to tell me, find out what this experience uh, holds that is of value for me. And, and the coherence therapist holds the same stance. When somebody comes in, rather than saying, oh, let's do A, B, or C to get rid of depression, or A, B, or C to get rid of your anxiety, we start turning our awareness directly towards the uncomfortable or undesired symptom. And we start looking for the hidden emotional logic that is contained within this feeling or this behavior, whatever it is that the client is bringing to us. And uh, could I interrupt for a minute? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Just so that this doesn't get too abstract for the listener, sure. I think this would be a good time to ground this in an example. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, good. So uh, I can give an example of what I'm talking about here. Actually, since, since we've already interrupted, let me just take a moment and come up with a good example. Um, <clears throat> hold on. <clears throat> good moment to clear my throat, too. <clears throat> let's take okay. Let's take a common one, like let's say someone uh, either for to advance in their career or because they want to do something else. Let's say that they um, want to do some public speaking, and that every time they think about even public speaking, Perfect. they break out in a, a sweat and they just feel a little nauseous and they just uh, don't want to even go there. Perfect. Okay. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so to make this all a little concrete, um, sorry, let me start this again. So to make this all a little more concrete, uh, I'll give an example. So let's say a client comes into me and says that uh, for professional reasons, uh, 
she needs to do uh, a bunch of public speaking. She's going to have to do a whole bunch of more public speaking than she's had to do in previous roles. Maybe it's part of getting a promotion, for example. And she very much wants the promotion, and she's very much excited about you know, taking on more responsibility. But every time she even thinks about public speaking, she breaks out in a sweat. She starts to have symptoms of anxiety, bordering perhaps even on panic. And uh, she anticipates that this is going to be a significant problem. Her, her career course is putting her uh, apparently on a crash course with this anxiety and panic symptoms. So from her perspective, this anxiety that she's experiencing is a problem. All she wants is for me to just let's get rid of this, right? She's probably already considered maybe taking some kind of medication. Maybe her doctor told her about some kind of anti-anxiety medication. Maybe she's done other forms of therapy to try and do deep breathing techniques, visualizing certain things to try to calm herself down and relax. But she's finding that those aren't quite doing the trick. So those are all counteractive techniques. And I'm not saying that they're bad things. There can be a place for all those counteractive techniques. But as this client is discovering, they often don't quite do the trick. So when she comes into me, the first thing we're going to do, probably in the first session, is start to turn, really turn our awareness, focus our awareness like a laser beam on this particular discomfort that she's experiencing. The way I do this in coherence therapy is I bring in, rather than just talking about it, we might talk about it for the first 10 minutes or so, so I can get a sense of the situation and the, how, what she experiences, the phenomenology of her experience. But after about 10 or 15 minutes, I'll usually turn, uh, sometimes even sooner than that, I will turn the, the focus of our inquiry into an experiential one. And I'll literally have her often close her eyes and picture herself in a public speaking situation. Or maybe I'll have her picture herself preparing to uh, get into a public speaking situation. And I'll have her focus her attention very, very closely on the first moment that she starts to notice the symptoms of anxiety arising. Notice as you're picturing yourself there, right, getting ready to walk up in front of this group of 20 or 25 of your peers at this training that you have to lead, as you picture yourself walking up there, tell me, what's the first moment that you start to notice that your heart rate is going up? What's the first moment that you start to notice yourself getting shaky? Right? And she'll tell me, right? Oh, it's before I even get up there, it says I'm preparing my notes the night before. Okay, so let's look at that. There you are preparing your notes, and you're noticing you're starting to get jittery. There's something in you that knows to have this particular response, right? And so one thing I might do is have her imagine that that doesn't occur, using the power of her imagination to uh, picture there she is, preparing her notes. There you are, you're preparing your notes and you're just calm and relaxed. You go to sleep, you sleep well, you wake up the next morning and you just walk in there and you step up in front of these 25 people and with a calm, relaxed, loose body, you just start to give your presentation, right? 
this might sound so far like a counteractive technique. It might sound like I'm just giving her a visualization to sort of go out and have a calm, relaxed experience. But what I'm actually looking for is some surprising, usually it's surprising to her, knowing, some surprising awareness that she might have about what's dangerous, what's not okay about this. And this is the moment where coherence therapy veers off from other therapies. Uh, that moment that I'm looking for, she'll often say something like, oh, that sounds great. I'd love to sleep well the night before. I'd love to walk up there. But as she pictures herself doing it, suddenly some other awareness invariably arises. Suddenly she'll say something surprising to both of us. Like she'll say, uh, oh, uh, they're not, they're looking angry or irritated with me, right? As she's picturing the people there. Or she'll say, oh, something in me, my throat's just suddenly closing up. I was about to start talking and suddenly my throat's closing up, right? That's a more common type of thing. And I'll say, oh, that's so interesting. Your throat's closing up. Something, let's turn our awareness directly towards what's happening there in your throat. Describe to me exactly what you're experiencing. She'll say, oh, it feels like something is grabbing my throat. And I'll say, okay, let's look at that. Something is grabbing your throat. I want you to do this. We're going to, um, so far you've been sort of identified as yourself. Let's switch the awareness. There's this thing that's grabbing your throat. I want you to take a moment, picture this woman standing there who's about to speak, and I want you to be that part. In fact, I want you to reach out with your hand towards her throat, that you are this thing that's grabbing her throat. And I want you to put your hand right there around her throat and squeeze just enough there. She can still breathe, but she can't speak. And I want you to tell her, I'm not gonna let you speak, right? So now I'm switching the identification away from her usual self, which is I'm a woman who wants to speak publicly, to I'm this thing that's stopping this woman from speaking publicly. And I will have her make what's called in coherence therapy terms an overt statement, which is to say from that part, I'm not going to let you speak, right? And I'll have her say it. I'm, you're not going to talk. I'm not going to let you, right? And and what this does is it starts to really bring the person into this other part of their awareness that they have previously not been identified with. And then just to add one more technique, uh, what this will often turn into is what we call a sentence completion. I'll, I'll, once she feels that and she feels the energy of, yeah, I'm going to squeeze your throat, not let you speak. Once she is, is in that energy, I'll say, because if I do, well, let's see what ends that sentence. I'm not going to let you speak because if I do, if I let you speak and I'll have that part, have her speak from that part of herself and we'll just see what sentence endings come up. Sometimes we'll do it over and over and a surprising ending might come up like they're going to be mad at you or you've got nothing to offer or they'll see what a worthless piece of whatever you are, right? Surprising endings will come up. A lot of aggression often will come up towards herself from this part. And we'll deepen. From there, we deepen the exploration. We start to find out that, oh, this sounds a lot like how her abusive parent sounded, right, when he or she talked to her, right, or her overly critical parent. Or maybe she grew up in a situation where when she opened her mouth, people lashed out at her, right? So this part is protecting her from having that happen again. 
we start to discover that there's something very important from the perspective of this part. There's something very important that it's protecting her from. And, and we, the goal of a session is going to be to find out what this emotional logic, the emotional logic or the emotional truth of the symptom is, and help the person become consciously aware and consciously identified with a part of him or herself that uh, he or she was not aware of previously and stay aware of that to now to integrate that into her conscious awareness or between sessions. And what often happens is once this is integrated into conscious awareness, uh, once she realizes, oh, I'm protecting myself against a, a, a previously unconscious danger by having my throat close up, she starts to realize that, oh, I don't have to protect myself from that danger anymore. Right? I'm not five years old and growing up anymore. I'm 45 years old and uh, executive vice president, right, or whatever it might be. Uh, that's, so that's oftentimes is a spontaneous transformation that occurs. If not, we have other ways of bringing about that transformation. But what I want to focus on here is this shift away from her familiar, usual uh, identification, right, with her usual sense of self to a structure within herself that she has been split off from, right? It's been affecting her, but her conscious awareness has been split off from it. So that's in a nutshell, that gives a flavor of coherence therapy and how it works. But you'll notice within that, I didn't know what was going to come up. I just set up an experience for her and we see what she bumps into. I'm listening for specific things. I'm listening for sort of discomfort or for surprising things she might say that don't fit with her usual sense of self. And I might help pull them out and say, get curious. Well, what was that you said about, you know, they're going to attack you? What was that? Let's, let's hear more about that. I might, but, I'm, but I don't know what she's going to say. Right. Uh, so that's that sort of abiding in the unknown and setting up experiences that help us bump into surprising parts of her experience together. That's great. Uh, I, I think people that really came to life for people. Uh, a follow up question to that is once people become aware of uh, I'm going to paraphrase it and put it in my own language, but. Once somebody's become aware of this way that they've been being, that they didn't know they were being that way, but it had some functional survival strategy within their current matrix. And once they become aware of that, in my experience of working with many, many people for a long time, some people can just take that and run with it. And other people after that need a lot of support, particularly people who tend to go into really heavy-duty judgment about things that they're becoming aware of. And I was wondering if you could continue to kind of spin this yarn about how you would work with a person, this person, once they had this opening, this breaking open, and let's assume that they're the type of person or they're in the place in their growth process where they have a really heavy internal judge that would just take this new awareness and use it as grist for the mill to just beat themselves up more intensely 
How do you make that dynamic part of the healing process? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, as you're accurately pointing out, many people, many of us have a very, very powerful or intense inner critic or inner judge. Right? Some, in some circles, that would be referred to as the superego. But I find that word to be so loaded with different connotations for different people that I tend to use the words inner critic or inner judge. Um, in my experience, it's not the case. So let's follow this fictional character that I'm creating, this fictional client. Uh, it's, 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 let's say this. It's not often, in my experience, the case that bringing that kind of awareness to light is what unleashes the inner critic or the inner judge. But in that particular case, that awareness that she was cut off from it, it does have an inner critic or an inner judge flavor, right? If it's saying something to her like, you've got nothing to offer, right? Shut up and sit down, right? That is her inner critic or inner judge voice that's starting to come through it. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes uh, the material that arises turns out to have a very intensely uh, self-critical or negatively self-judgmental flavor to it. And sometimes just the very fact of being aware of what it's saying and that it's actually trying to serve a purpose, it's trying to protect her in a way that is archaic or that is no longer necessary, sometimes that in and of itself is enough for the client to disidentify from that inner critic or inner judge voice. However, it is also the case that sometimes they'll come back the next week and say, it's completely true. I am worthless. I have nothing to offer. Right? And, and they're not disidentifying with it. Now, this brings up a very interesting uh, question, which is how does one work with the inner critic or the inner judge? Um, and many spiritual schools... Uh, in my experience, most uh, Buddhist schools, for example, advocate working with the inner judge or inner critic by loving it, right? Uh, by embracing it, right? Bringing compassion to it as we would any other part of our experience. I personally have not found that to be effective specifically with this structure. The inner critic or the inner judge uh, stands apart from all other psychological or ego structures, in my experience, in that I don't find I'm able to love it to pieces. Um, now, I'm aware, like I said, that many spiritual schools would disagree with me on this. Uh, I personally, uh, my spiritual path is the diamond approach, which is... Uh, follows the writings of A.H. Almas. That's uh, the pen name of Hamid Ali, who's my teacher. And uh, starting about, I started that practice about 13 years ago. And in the first year, uh, I remember asking him uh, about this because in the Diamond Approach work, that's the one part of our experience that we actually actively fight off 
that we mobilize the aggression of our ego self to fight off the attacks, to actually, uh, in coherence therapy words, counteract to some extent the, uh, the attacks of the inner critic. And I asked him about it early on. I said, well, we turn our awareness in this practice towards more than any other practice I had ever found. We turn our awareness and inquiry towards the most unwelcome, intolerable parts of our experience. But then when the inner critic comes along, we fight that off. Why is that? And he pointed something out, which was that the inner critic attacks are so intense and so painful and so destructive that they make it essentially, essentially impossible for us to really stay present with our experience. When my own inner critic gets activated, I find that I feel so bad at such a core level that I can't stay present with the subtle nuances uh, of, my, of what's happening aside from inner critic. I can't, uh, in my experience, I, I'm unable, I become unable to really discern the fine points of what's happening in, in, in me. And when I'm able to sort of push off, fight back, mobilize some aggression against my own inner critic, what it does is it clears some space. And then invariably, with that space cleared, I can now turn towards and stay present with my inner experience. And we'll find, oh, this is going on, or that's happening, or I was feeling this, or I was thinking that. Things that I never would have known because I couldn't sit and turn towards my experience while in the throes of an inner critic attack. So with some clients who have a particularly intense inner critic, I will shift and start to uh, do some exploration with them. This is where I, I maintain my coherence therapy uh, stance. I'll start doing some, we'll redefine the symptom in effect to finding out why is it that they are completely just letting their inner critic beat them up? Why is it that they're completely letting themselves get pummeled by their inner critic and, and are completely identifying with it instead of separating, right? Or disidentifying or even fighting it off. We'll start looking for the coherence of that because many, many people have a, a, a position, an unconscious position that believes they have to stay being pummeled by their inner critic, right? Because without it, they'll just go off and do some, make bad choices, right? Live a terrible life, mess everything up, fail miserably. Many people have uh, a sense that they have to, that they, as miserable as it is, their best chance for actually living a halfway decent or halfway successful life is to stay under the thumb of their inner critic. And, and as we explore this further, we'll often start to get in touch with where the inner critic comes from, because it is the vast majority of the time, if not all the time, uh, an internalization of some early important figures from their life. It usually sounds uncannily like one parent or the other, or some other important formative figure from their life. And that we'll start to realize that there's a very powerful attachment dynamic that's being played out here. Maintaining the inner critic is 
tantamount to staying in an attachment dynamic with my father, my mother, the, you know, whoever, my grandmother who raised me, right? And so we'll, we'll start to really explore and find out why they're not doing anything to free themselves from these very powerful, very destructive self attacks. So if I'm hearing you right, this is very exciting. So if I'm hearing you right, I want to check this out. It's like a two-step process where you'd start out by challenging the inner critic. And then once you had a little space, then you would use that content with your, uh, you would include that content as part of your, uh, uh, shall we say, regular coherence therapy. Uh, actually, I would almost reverse the order of those two things. Uh, that, what you just described, is what I strive to do in my own internal process. Right? I'll fight off my own inner critic if it's really got me down. And then I will uh, sit and abide with my inner experience and inquire into what's happening internally and, uh, and let my inquiry unfold. When I'm working with clients, what we're often doing is uh, I don't encourage them right off the bat to fight off their inner critic uh, so as to then clear things out and, and be able to continue the therapeutic inquiry. I often, what I, and this is a subtle distinction, <clears throat> I encourage them to fight off their inner critic. Oftentimes we'll even do it as a two chair technique, Gestalt style. I'll have them sit in one chair and their inner critic is in the other. And for example, I might say to the client, okay, why don't you tell that your inner critic who's sitting across from you, uh, it really hurts me when you tell me that. I hate how that makes me feel, right? Leave me alone, get off of me. Now it sounds like I'm having them fight off the inner critic the way I would do myself. But again, what I'm looking for is what makes them hold back, right? They'll start to parrot the words because I told them to, but I'll often say, hmm, doesn't sound like a lot of energy behind there, right? And they'll, they'll acknowledge, yeah, you know, I can't really get behind it. And we'll start looking for, oh, what does this person know about why not to just totally let loose on the inner critic? What's making this person hold back, right? That's where we begin in the resistance to fighting it off, we start to look for, oh, that's where the gold is. That's where the, that's where the valuable information is. What's, what's fueling that resistance? What does this person know about why to not just fight the inner critic off, why to leave it sort of intact? And um, that's, that's the exploration. That's fascinating. And I, I understand how that dovetails back with the uh, object relations and attachment theory uh, material you were talking about earlier. So that's really fascinating. So I think, I think between, I think at this point, I think we've given the listener a taste for coherence therapy and what makes it what it is. Um, and at the end, we'll tell the listeners how they can learn more about coherence therapy. But one thing I don't think necessarily comes across so far that I'd like to punctuate is, and I, I think this is because the work is coming from a different place, is can you speak to how the, the results that 
you're able to get uh, in a compressed time frame how this is really mind-boggling. This is mind-boggling to other therapists. This is mind-boggling to people who've been in therapy. Can you talk a little bit about the speed at which, uh, when coherence therapy is done well, that these major openings can happen? Yes. So are we, am I assuming that the question you just asked is going to be audible to people, or should I paraphrase something to lead into that? Um, however you want to take it. I just want people to really get a sense of not only is this work very powerful yes. when it's done in the right hands, but I want you to kind of blow people's minds in yeah. terms of what's possible per unit time. Like a lot of people avoid this kind of work because at some level they're being that, well, gee, this is going to be really hard, painful, cost of fortune. And even if it is going to work, it's probably going to take three to five years. So I'd like you to address the, maybe you can do it in the context of addressing a little bit about the history of coherence yeah. therapy and about how, what it was originally called and kind of, kind of, I'd like the, the, the listeners to really get a sense that we're usually talking about you know, unless there's like some really severe personality disorder type things going on, we're usually talking here to have a major breaking open here. We're really almost always talking under a dozen sessions and a lot of times less than that. So if you could kind of speak to that in a way that brings it to life and makes it at least possibly believable to yes. the listener. Absolutely. Okay. So one of the things that I want to highlight, and I think you're getting a sense from some of the examples that I'm giving here, is one of the other things that really sets coherence therapy apart from so many other forms of therapy is that it, it relies almost completely on experiential work, right? In the examples I've given so far, I'm having a client sort of be the part of herself that's holding her own throat, right? And visualizing, standing in front of people, right? To evoke certain feelings in her body, to evoke certain experiences within her. Or when we're doing inner critic work, I'm having the person actually sit in front of her inner critic and talk directly to the inner critic and then switch seats and talk back from the inner critic back to her. It's very, very experiential. I spend probably 90% of every session in this experiential um, realm with my clients. I try to minimize as much as possible how much we're talking about situations in a prefrontal cortex to prefrontal cortex, sort of usual cognitive or verbal way. And what that does is it speeds up the work to a degree that is very surprising to most clients and also to most therapists. Um, you know, I came to this work, uh, I went to a more analytically oriented graduate school. And within that school, I, I found a lot of the analytical training I was getting to be frustrating because I found it so heavily interpretive. And it just didn't, it felt very cognitive to me often. It felt 
um, oftentimes sort of contrived. And, and I came across self-psychology and intersubjective work, which felt to me like a huge improvement on anything else that I had been introduced to so far. Because self-psychology started to move towards the sense of, oh, there are two individuals here, right? The therapist and the client, each with his or her subjective experience, right? There's no expert and patient, right? There, is, there are two subjective experiencers here, and, and together they're exploring to co-create a new understanding of the client's reality. That felt much better than anything I had been introduced to so far, but it still was doing it in a way that felt extremely slow, extremely laborious, uh, a tagline that my professors would repeat over and over was how important it was to have longevity of therapy, you know, two years minimum, maybe three to get really powerful, profound results. And I remember sitting in class week after week thinking there must be something more effective and more efficient than this. It was right around that time, this is about in 2002, uh, that I got introduced to coherence therapy. Uh, Bruce Ecker, who is a, a marriage and family therapist in Oakland, California, uh, and is the originator of coherence therapy, was teaching a class at a, another local graduate school. And when I started reading his first book, which was published in 1996, and it's, it was called Depth-Oriented Brief Therapy, which was the previous name for coherence therapy. Um, it was renamed at a certain point because depth-oriented brief therapy, although it was a very accurate name, it was quite a mouthful. Uh, he was teaching a class at a local graduate school, and I went and audited his class. And once I started reading the ideas of coherence therapy, I thought, oh, this takes it to the next level again, right? It still maintains the sense that there's no expert here, but, it, but by accessing different parts of the brain than the client is used to inhabiting, by activating uh, the emotional brain, the limbic brain, um, presumably activating parts of the brain like the amygdala, where a lot of powerful emotional knowings and implicit knowings about self and the world are held. It's as if we could move into hyperspace. I often have this image in my mind when I'm working with clients from the original Star Wars movie where they'd be flying in the Millennium Falcon and then Han Solo would say, okay, we're going to go into hyperspace and he'd press a button or pull a lever and the whole thing would take off into hyperspace. And I often feel like that's what we're doing when we start to move into the experiential realm and activate the limbic mind. Uh, it's as if we, everything just takes off, right? The first 10 minutes we've been talking about in a familiar back and forth way and the client looks the way she always looks and then we go into the experience and within a few minutes I see a completely different look come across her face. She'll look like a little girl version of herself and she looks lost in and completely identified with whatever she's experiencing, right? She's no longer giving me sort of nice sort of pat answers that, I'm, that I can tell are things she's thought of before, right? It's as if we enter a wormhole and, you know, a wormhole in the universe, 
my understanding, not being a physicist, is that you enter a wall and then you come out in a completely different place, right? It it's, traverses vast physical difference at distances without having to actually traverse every single mile of that distance. And uh, physicists will have to, and the audience will have to forgive me for my uh, specificity on the details on that. But that is often the experience that I have as we go into this more limbic realm of the client's experience, we just, we skip years to get through through talking about and probably would have eventually become clear to us, right? If we just talked about week after week after week, uh, we skip all that and just get directly to the core, very powerful assumptions about self and the world that guide huge parts of the client's experience. And this is important in terms of eliminating surface level symptoms and working through surface level symptoms, but it's also important in terms of getting, when you start getting to some very core constructs that underlie your sense of self or your sense of the reality of everything, you're getting into some very, very deep, powerful stuff that is going to be key to your spiritual work as well. Right? You're getting into things that are going to, and it, when you start to realize, oh, if this wasn't true, and that wasn't true, and this wasn't true, that I, all of which I took to be true without even knowing it, it starts to open up questions and curiosity. Well, what else might be true for me that I don't even know is true? And what else? Where does this end, right? This sense of exploration. And we can open up to some very, very vast levels of experience uh, in that way. So practically speaking, you know, assuming, you know, the person isn't coming for years and years of spiritual guidance, but someone's coming for more of a specific type of challenge that they haven't been able to handle either on their own or with other professional help. Would a, would a good ballpark sense be that to give people a sense of things is that a, a reasonable expectation would be some significant breakthrough within um, like, like three to three to six sessions? That's a great question. So I, I tend to assume when somebody comes with some, like you said, some surface level uh, psychological symptom or emotional symptom or problem, I tend to assume, I, 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 I make a point of never making promises to people about how long things will take, but we're probably looking at under 10 sessions. Sometimes breakthroughs happen in one session. Sure. That happens. But I don't, it's not, this is not a miracle cure. Therapy is not that simple, right? Uh, so I don't make it uh, a promise to anybody that, oh yeah, we'll just clean that out in one to three sessions. However, we're, we're usually looking at less than 10 sessions to resolve a particular problem, even sometimes very deep intractable problems. Having said that, some people have much, much more complex uh, psychological wiring that makes things take longer. And, and what often happens is, as I said, we'll work through that initial thing, but then I have clients who will say, oh, well now let's work through this. So we'll do some more sessions on that. Right. When that's resolved, oh, let's work through this. And it can become a series of short-term therapies in a way. And some people who just realize, oh, there's just some, something very powerful happening here, and I want to just keep 
exploring and keep allowing this work to unfold. And as a result, I'll work with some people for quite a long period of time. But that's, yeah. but that's because they've chosen right, to shift away from the original therapeutic goal and broaden or expand it. You know, there's so many other things I would like to talk to you about. I'd like to, uh, we have about 10 minutes left in this conversation, but I would like to invite you, if you're willing, sometime soon to come back again, because there are a lot of other things that I want to get into that I don't want to rush. Um, but one thing I do want to get into before we close it out and people find out how they can learn more and contact you and things like that is it's clear to me as you describe the the nature of the process and the 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 role of the guide in this process it's clear to me that in order to become a good coherence therapist uh, there needs to be a pretty deep level of personal transformation as along with uh, a whole new skill set and uh, I know you're involved in training coherence therapists, and if you'd be willing, I'd like you to speak to this issue of how to, I was going to say train, but I really don't like that word here, almost like grow like a gardener would. What's been your experience of uh, empowering or growing excellent coherence therapists, because it would seem to me that the level of commitment to their own spiritual growth would have to be quite profound to become an excellent coherence therapist. And I wonder, as someone who represents coherence therapy formally and someone who trains people, um, if you could speak to that and if that's a major challenge for you or if you've kind of handled that or because... Because if this is going to become available to people around the world, there has to be, you know, a fair number of really good coherence therapists. Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. So, yes, the answer is I've been training coherence therapists for years through the Coherence Psychology Institute, uh, which is run by Bruce Ecker and uh, a few other people who uh, have really taken on this goal of spreading coherence therapy around the world. And um, what I find is this, uh, practicing coherence therapy in and of itself, like you said, is a very, the art of really practicing it effectively is, it's a very specialized skill set that can be learned. No doubt about it, it can be learned. I've trained and like you said, maybe gardened uh, many, many people through the years um, in, in shifting away from some of the sort of habits that they've developed in their previous years of practice and, and taking on new ways of thinking about how to engage with the client's experience and new ways of thinking about how to guide the client into that inquiry. So, all of that just speaks to the, the specific skill set of uh, practicing coherence therapy. And, and it can certainly be taught. Uh, having said that, there is this other meta factor that I hear you speaking to, which is uh, the therapist's own 
dedication to personal work and to personal growth. And that's going to be a factor that, in my opinion, uh, will, will either be a limit or will be a factor in expanding um, the therapist's effectiveness, no matter what form of therapy he or she is practicing. Uh, as a, somebody in a training I attended once said, you can only really take people as far and as deep as you have been willing to and able to go yourself. And he clarified that statement saying, it doesn't mean you have had to have had the exact same experience that they've had, right? Many of my clients come in with experiences that I have never had and hope to never have, right? Have, some people have experienced incredibly stressful, painful, horrible things, right? Um, but he said, but you, you need to, uh, you need to have explored your own experience of the, 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 on, a, on a more subtle level. You need to have really uh, fully done your own exploring of uh, how the ego and on a deeper level how the soul is impacted by this type of pain or this type of grieving or this type of confusion, right? Or feeling small or helpless or powerless, right? And that's going to be true no matter what kind of therapy one is practicing. Coherence therapy is no, no exception to that. And so I do certainly uh, any therapist to continue their own process, whether that be through ongoing therapeutic work or by finding a meditation practice or some other form of spiritual practice. Um, I encourage all therapists to do that. And to the extent that therapists are unwilling to look at themselves and their own structures and their own uh, presuppositions and assumptions about themselves in reality, it will limit, it will limit their ability to take their clients to a certain level, no matter what kind of therapy they're practicing. Do you address this directly in your, in your training? Uh, yes and no. I, I don't, I don't initiate that with my trainees. There are some trainees with whom uh, I will do a lot of sort of educating of how to do coherent therapy techniques and the question of their own personal work uh, may not be a central focus. Um, however, there are, I, I have a, a significant number of trainees who, as we're working together, will start to notice, oh, wow, you are tapping into certain themes and certain, and you're discerning certain levels of the client's experience that I've never really thought to look at before, right? It'll start to become apparent to them that, uh, that there's something that they've never even thought to bring attention to before, right? And, and sometimes in the course of coherence therapy training, we'll even flip the roles for a session if they say, oh, something's coming up for me. For example, I can't seem to get myself to bring my clients into an experience, right? I, I just want to stay and talk about for the entire hour. Sometimes we'll do some coherence therapy on that and they'll start to notice that, oh, you're bringing in certain, you're bringing me to certain levels of my experience that oh, I haven't really gone to before. It'll ignite a certain curiosity in them, right? And, and then they'll start 
they'll if they start asking questions, I, I might you know, suggest oh, you might want to look down this path or this path. But it's not my goal to have anybody take on any particular path of spiritual or personal growth. And I try to, you know, open up a curiosity in them without suggesting any any particular uh, path that they should follow as a result. Right. There was one thing you said that really caught my ear, and that was uh, when you talked about how in the process, sometimes that'll catalyze the student's awareness that you're perceiving and listening in a different way than they are. And therefore, you have a different net and you're picking up different things. And in in ontology, we would call that that they're starting to listen to your listening. Aha. And that's a nice I, way of putting it. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. Um, so I want to move toward wrapping up this conversation. And some things I'd like you to talk about before we close it out is number one, this is in no particular order. Number one, uh, let people know again who you are and how people can reach you if they're interested in possibly doing some work with you. And also if they want to know more about coherence therapy. And then also, if you'd like anything, I want to leave it open, anything you'd like to share to complete this conversation for yourself, including, if you'd like, how this how this conversation is going for you, kind of how it's impacting you, and then we'll, we'll close it out. Fantastic. Great. So uh, there are a number of ways to find out more about coherence therapy. The primary source is to go to coherencetherapy.org, uh, which is Bruce Ecker's uh, website. And that's all one word, coherencetherapy.org. Um, he's got all kinds of case examples, uh, videos of recorded sessions, um, upcoming workshops and lectures, things like that. Uh, they can all be found at coherencetherapy.org. Um, my personal practice can be found, I can be found in my personal practice through my own website, which is Berkeley Psychologist, that's all one word, dot org. And Berkeley is spelled B-E-R-K-E-L-E-Y, psychologist.org. And uh, that's how I can be contacted by either email or uh, through my phone number, which is 510 510- Five nine four four three oh three. That's uh, the other way to learn a lot about coherence therapy is to uh, watch a series of online videos that I created with my colleague Simon Dorsanya, who's a coherence therapist in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, we've got four introductory coherence therapy videos on YouTube. They can really easily be found by just typing the words coherence therapy into the YouTube search finder, and they'll come right up. Uh, They're labeled parts one through four, an introduction to the theory and practice of coherence therapy. Um, I think that's the simplest and easiest way to really get into an understanding of what it's all about. One last resource is the book, Unlocking the Emotional Brain, uh, which Bruce Ecker and some other collaborators, um, published in 2012. And that's a very powerful explanation of how coherence therapy uh, activates 
uh, a form of neuroplasticity called memory reconsolidation, which we haven't spoken at all about in this interview. Um, but it shows how not only coherence therapy, but a whole range of other therapies uh, also rely on this form of neuroplasticity to achieve extremely powerful results extremely quickly. So I recommend it for uh, any therapist, certainly, and anybody who's interested in how the brain really, really works. Um, that's Unlocking the Emotional Brain, and it's available on Amazon. So those are some resources for getting in touch with me or finding out about coherence therapy. And then I think you asked about how this interview is uh, affecting me or how I'm experiencing this interview. And also anything you'd like to say in closing, just to mm -hmm. complete the, the conversation for yourself. Mm -hmm. So uh, just to give a quick window into my internal process, the whole time we've been talking, I've been trying to stay very close to uh, my internal process, trying to stay embodied because I find that to be in presence, I need to really stay in my body. Right? So I've been trying to just maintain an awareness of to what extent am I inhabiting my arms and my legs, what's happening in my belly. Um, I've been aware as I've been talking at moments, there have been questions going through my mind of, oh, am I saying everything that needs to be said or am I missing important things? But I've, and, and some doubts can arise from that place, but I've also been aware that Oh, I've been letting myself speak from a place that feels like it's not coming from my mind necessarily. I've been letting whatever is coming out of my mouth arise from a deeper place. And, and there's a certain faith that I've learned to have in that maybe I'll say every single thing, maybe I won't say every single thing, but what needs to get communicated energetically will get communicated from that place even if I'm missing some content. And like you said, we always have the possibility of another interview to cover more of the content that might get missed. So I've been just observing and watching this struggle between the deep in and that once upon a time would have probably been taking up a big chunk of my bandwidth while I'm talking. And, and then this sort of comfort and, uh, and trust that arises from knowing that I'm allowing what needs to come through to come through as I'm talking. And, um, and that will get communicated to the, to the listener. Right? So that's just a little window into my experience of this interview. And as far as concluding remarks, the main thing that I want to say is that I, I, I love coherence therapy. I am really passionate about it. Um, I find it to be an exciting way to work, a dynamic way to work. I find it to be a form of therapy that my clients really enjoy. Many people dread going to therapy. They think it'll be awful. We'll have to look at painful things. It'll be like pulling teeth. And that's not what people find. There's, when you stay in that realm of, of the unknown, it, it maintains an attitude of play. There's a playfulness, a lightfulness. People laugh a lot when they get in touch with surprising bits of their experience. I almost, it's never been formalized as a term, but Bruce and I and others have talked about a coherence laugh, which is the laughter that arises when somebody will say something, which ostensibly, if you just saw it written, would seem like, what an awful thing to get in touch with. But laughter will arise because they feel the truth of what they've just said, right? And, 
and that laughter becomes sort of part of the part of the process, a, a lightness, a joy of getting in touch with what's true, even if what's true is painful. Um, and I have just realized that I hadn't really spoken to that part of the experience so far, so I wanted to mention it. Um, I think that would be that would be the main thing that I would like to get across before we end. Thank you so much, uh, Niall. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we've been speaking with Niall Gagan about coherence therapy, which in my opinion is a real breakthrough in helping people to make dramatic, uplifting shifts in their lives and in their sense of themselves in a fairly short period of time. And just to complete this conversation for me, Niall, I feel very excited and very grateful for the opportunity to be a part of uh, drawing you out and helping your work on coherence therapy to become better known. And it's really an honor and a privilege to help to midwife this work in the world. So I really am grateful and uh, hopefully sometime in the future we can have you back and maybe get a little bit more into the uh, connection between what coherence therapy has discovered works and what the neuroscientists are discovering about how the brain works. I think that would be really, really important. And so um, if you've come in in the middle of this, somehow you've been listening to Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. My name is Dr. David Chemnitzer. Most people call me Dr. David, and I'm also the cutting edge doc. And um, on freeing the body, freeing the soul, sometimes I'll be talking about things that are important to me, but a lot of the times I'll be interviewing people that are doing cutting edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality, and social transformation. So thanks for listening, and we'll close with love and peace. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. To access all episodes, including show notes, go to CuttingEdgeDoc.com. That's CuttingEdgeDoc.com. Lastly, if you love today's show, you can support Dr. David, his work, and the show by going over to iTunes and giving a five-star rating and a heartfelt comment. Thank you again for joining us today and for your commitment to freeing the body, freeing the soul.